Well, good morning, everyone, and officially Merry Christmas. I think we're deep into this December season. I love it. I don't know about you. I always love Christmas. I got so many great memories of the Christmas season, and part of those memories, of course, as a kid is the waiting the waiting for it to happen, and, and it gets, uh, the waiting gets more painful as you get closer to Christmas Day, and I have these memories as a kid. Uh, for a while, we opened our gifts on Christmas morning. That's changed since then because we could see the futility of it. I mean, why go to bed on Christmas Eve if you have to wait to open your gifts Christmas morning? Nobody sleeps. And this miracle happens, though, every Christmas morning on those occasions. And I'm not talking about the, you know, the red guy, big guy coming down the chimney. It's the miracle of children waking up without their parents prodding on a non-school day called Christmas. And, and what gives? What's with that? Well, we know it's the anticipation it's the expectation of what's to come, all that Christmas entails. So as we already talked about this morning, we are in this season called Advent, and it's the Latin for arrival, and it's all about expectation, looking forward to something. And so in the, in the Christian uh, community, we have this time as we approach Christmas Day where we reimagine what it would be like to be waiting for the coming of the promised one. To, and, and so much good happens as we're reminded of that, the anticipation. You know, that's what the prophets did when they were speaking on behalf of God. We see in, in 1 Peter, for example, where it talks about the prophets and how they were speaking and they were inquiring, they were looking because God had given them a word about the, the coming one, but they didn't know all the details and Peter says they weren't just serving themselves, but they were serving those who were to come. They were serving us. And so we're going to allow over the next three Sundays the, the prophetic word to serve us, to inspire us to, to faith and faithfulness because we see that God is a God who promises. And we see in the coming, we see in the arrival of Jesus that God keeps those promises. And that should inspire us to faithful living going forward because... I mean, what if he hadn't come? What if God hadn't fulfilled his promises? What would life be like? One of our favorite family movies is It's a Wonderful Life, and, you know, it's sappy and all that, but, you know, it really is a, a great movie, and if you don't know the storyline, um, George Bailey is, is like the glue to this city, and, uh, but it, he's experienced a tough time. He's, he's being accused of fraud, uh, falsely so. It just happened through the uh, circumstances of, of um, poor, poor uh, out care of his brother, um, his uncle, and uh, in this situation where he's under stress, he, he, he wishes that he'd never been alive. And as the story goes, his angel Clarence, he says, that's a good idea. And so he has permission from above to, to allow George Bailey to see what the world would be like if he had never lived. And, of course, what he sees is a completely different world. And, and it's not a good world. It's a world that's, that's much worse because of his absence. And so what would our world be like without Jesus? Where well, we're going to get a bit of a glimpse of that as we go back to the very first book in the Bible. If you'll, you'll go with me to Genesis. And we're going to spend most of our time in Genesis chapter 3. But we, we find in Genesis, of course, the, the creation account 
And God creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he, he sets them in a garden. And, and of course, you're, you're most likely very familiar with this story, but don't check out on me as we talk about it because this story is so critical to Christmas. Christmas and creation are tied together, and I hope you'll see that this morning. What happens in creation is pivotal, pivotal as to Christmas. So Adam and Eve are set in the garden, and it, it tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that God had breathed life into human beings, into Adam. God breathed life. Adam is dependent upon God for his very life. And Adam is meant to live his life in connection with God. That's where the life comes from, by being connected with God. Okay, so that's where his life exists. And that's, that's what God has purposed for him, to live in relationship with God. But enter the snake. And we see this story here when Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so the snake comes to Adam and to Eve. And God had, God had given Adam and Eve this incredible freedom to do whatever they wanted to do within the garden, except for one thing, that they should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just that one thing, that they should let and be dependent upon God to define good and evil. But the tempter comes to them and he tries to persuade them that God can't be trusted and that if they will eat of this uh, fruit, that they themselves, in a sense, will become God, that they can live independent of God. But of course, we know how it goes. Man was created to live in dependency upon God. Adam's life exists in connection with God. And through their disobedience, when they disconnect, life disconnects. Malcolm Smith in his book, Power of the Blood Covenant, says, this is not to be likened to talking in class, this disobedience of Adam and Eve. It is likened to defying gravity, only infinitely more so. Apart from causing creation to cease, there was nothing God could do to suspend the results of their sin. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die was not a punishment, but the announcement of a fact. You are dependent upon God for your life. You are created to live in his love. And if you walk away from him, a law will be triggered that cannot be reversed. You will certainly and unquestionably die. Sometimes I ask, Tim, why do you, why do you have an artificial tree? Why don't you get a live tree? And I think about that, and I think, is it really a live tree? Because it's been severed from its roots. And so, yeah, that, that pine tree can look really nice and smell good for a week or two or three, and if you keep it watered. Um, but is it really a live tree? Because it's cut off from its roots, and eventually those, those needles, they get dry, and, and, and it's, it reveals itself for what it is. It's dead. So it is with Adam and Eve severed from their roots, severed from their connection with God, they are going to die. They have died in their relationship with God, spiritually speaking. They are severed from him, and ultimately that will play itself out in physical death, and the shadow of death, and the suffering of that is upon them. Genesis, Genesis 3, verse 13 it says, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
What follows is a conversation with God and, and a number of curses. He speaks to the serpent first. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So, um, some people think that maybe snakes walked at one time and now they don't. I'm not sure if the scripture is trying to teach us that. But we do know is that, that the, the snake is under the, under the curse of heel. It's like, eat my dust. You know, that's a, that's a phrase of judgment. When somebody's eating dust, it's like they're defeated. And, and this, will be the, this will be the life of the snake. And, and um, I don't know about you, but, but I don't particularly like snakes. Um, they are not, um, they're not something I really, really like in my life. But so God curses them, and I'm totally good with that. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm totally good with that. Uh, last week we were talking about uh, Nineveh and Jonah. And in that, in that area of Nineveh today, actually, they found a, what they call a uh, cylinder seal. And on it, it has an image of a woman a tree, a man, and a standing snake. And they call it the temptation seal. It's amazing. Now, some, some archaeologists want to deny that this has anything to do with Genesis, but, but come on, really. I mean, isn't that amazing? This is the, this is the story that's been captured. And, and as a result of this, the snake will be cursed. He won't be a standing snake. He'll be crawling, eating dust, then God speaks to the woman, he says in verse 15, or 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, if you are a woman here who's had kids, you, can, you know what that means. And, and I've tried to show empathy uh, in situations um, when my wife was giving birth and it just didn't go over that well because we as men, we have no idea, right, what that childbearing pain is like. But this is part of the, of the curse. And there's more to it. There'll, there'll also be a curse that happens to the relationship. Because he says, uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So there's going to be relationship pain between men and women. And then there's going to be this frustration when it comes to work. He says to Adam in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So um, uh, if you're involved in agriculture, maybe even you have a garden in your backyard, you, know, you plant things and, and these weeds and thistles come up and you pull them out and it looks really good for a couple of days and then more comes. So there's always this fighting against creation itself. There's this frustration. This is part of the result of Adam and Eve disobeying God. There's going to be, God says, you're, I'm introducing you now to a life where there's going to be frustration in your work. And, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You're going to return to the ground. There's going to be death. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is not, this is not that great a picture, is it? We're talking Christmas here. What is going on? And if you read on a little bit further, we see that Adam and Eve get more bad news. They're banished from the garden and from God's presence. Merry Christmas. And if it wasn't for Jesus, this would be the most bleakest 
darkest picture without hope for humanity. But in the midst of all this bad news, we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Sometimes in this season, you know, if you're, as you're driving along and the sun hasn't set yet, it's still light out, but people, I don't know, maybe they have their timer on for their lights. The lights have already gone on and you see them and they're, you know, it looks okay, but when you come back later and the sun is set and it's dark, it's in that darkness that you see how beautiful those lights really are. Against the darkness, if you will, of what God has pronounced on the way life is going to be for mankind here, Genesis 3.15 stands out as this brilliant ray of light, of hope. We're going to look at that more closely this morning, the light that God has given to us. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. Now, Uh, that word enmity is hostility, it's against one another. Remember, God is speaking to a serpent right now, and and if we just took it at a natural level, I would say I, I, I understand that too. I have walked through the deserts of Arizona by myself, and one of the constant things that's been on my mind is, is there a snake around here as you walk through the bush? Because I'm alone, and this could be, go really bad. And, and so there's this hatred for snakes. I think we understand that. But there's, there's obviously something way more going on here in this passage of Scripture. See, the snake, the serpent, was the vehicle for the evil or evil one that, that was deceiving, that brought the temptation to Adam and Eve. And so that serpent becomes the, the type, the symbol for all of evil that aligns itself with the idea that you can live independently from God. Any thought, any, any motivation, um, any direction that way is in alignment with that evil. That you can live independently from God. That is the, that is the origin of, of the first temptation. And so <clears throat> God says, I'm going to put enmity, enmity between those who are in alignment with that and those who would be in alignment with the women. In other words, have a relationship with God. And that's why Jesus says to the Pharisees when they're opposing him, he says, you, of, uh, you are of your father, the devil. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, in the original language, that word offspring is seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, nowhere in Scripture do we see that Satan had children. Um, so again, we're, we're, we're thinking of anyone, any person, any being. We know there are, there are uh, heavenly hosts that are in alignment with the evil one. So and we know there are human beings that, that, that uh, have aligned themselves that way. So, so when it talks about offspring, when it talks about seed, we're talking about any group of people that are in alignment with the enemy. And he says, and her seed, her seed. 
And as the biblical story plays on, you don't see a world of harmony and peace that we would so much desire. You see lots of hostility. You see lots of violence. In particular, you see those who are called God's children, whom God chooses and reveals himself to become the targets of those who are against. And so we read, for example, in Exodus, when the children of Israel, whom God has revealed himself to, how they go down to Egypt under favorable circumstances as Joseph, uh, one of them, has been sent ahead of them and he's become second in command in the whole country. And so Israel moves down there and it's favorable circumstances and it goes well for them for a while. But then there, there, there comes a new ruler who doesn't know the history and doesn't know them and he, they become a threat to him and his rule, and so he treats them. Uh, he treats them badly. In fact, we read in Exodus one how he he commands the you know the midwives to when they see the Hebrew children born, the boys to kill them. That's right there in the in the scripture. We read the book of Esther, and we see that the whole story is all about the the children of Israel being hated by someone and moving towards having the whole nation of Israel destroyed, killed. We read the story at Christmas time, which we, I don't know, we just, we just ignore, we just put it aside. Um, in Matthew chapter two, when, when Herod has had this encounter with the wise men and he asks them to come back and, and tell them where is, like where's this king, where's he gonna be born? I wanna go worship him too. Of course he didn't wanna do that. Because we read in, in Matthew chapter 2 how Herod had all the, all the baby boys born like up to two years of age slaughtered. This is part of the history of our Christmas that we celebrate. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, said, Herod the Great, king of the Jews, enforced Roman rule at the local level. And in an irony of history, we know Herod's name mainly because of the massacre of the innocents. I've never seen a Christmas card depicting that state-sponsored act of terror, but it too was a part of Christ's coming. Now, there's a particular reason for Satan, for evil, uh, for their desire, for their enmity against, uh, against God's seed through the woman. And, and, it, and we read that because of the second part of Genesis chapter 3.15. And it says there, he shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The language is singular. He, a singular person, and, and when you look at the language around it, it does seem to be indicating it is going to be a man. A man is going to crush your skull, and you will bruise his heel. Now, it appears that maybe Eve thought this was going to be one of her children. But when her first son, when Abel and Cain, when they, there's violence that happens and, and uh, Abel is killed, she knows obviously it won't be Cain, it's not going to be Abel. But then she, she has another child and she names him Seth, which means appointed by God. And we wonder if she thought this would be the one, perhaps this is the one who will be the seed. 
But of course, it's not going to be Seth. But if you follow through Scripture, you see this promise of seed. And, and in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, In you and your seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And you see the prophets picking that up. You see them speaking to David and talking to David. That's one who has sat on your throne. He's going to have this incredible rule. And so, so the prophets begin to add their voices to what we see and read here in Genesis 3.15. That there's a coming one. A special person, a seed who will rule and who will crush the head of the serpent. We fast forward to the end of the book, into Revelations, and we read in Revelation chapter 12 the picture of what the prophets had envisioned. It begins in Revelation 12:1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Revelation 12 gives us, gives us a visual of something that as we read on, we realized has already happened. In verse 3, it says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. He's got, he's got these uh, stars on his head and ten horns, and his tail has swept down a third of, of the stars. And it says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. In verse 4, When she bore her child, that he might devour it. And she gave birth to a man-child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is speaking about the birth of Jesus. How the birth of Jesus, the coming, the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus that we are moving towards celebrating was the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis chapter 3. And the fulfillment of the word of the prophets who over and over again talked about the seed, the coming one who would rule and Revelation here gives it to us very quickly. It says, she bore her child. He was the one who was to rule all the nations, but her child was caught up to God. It, it, it doesn't give us what happened in between the child being born and the child being caught up to God. But you see, the writer of this assumes that you know the history already of the Lord Jesus Christ. How it tells us when, when, for example, Peter was preaching to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and explaining the life of Jesus. And he says, he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. We read in John's gospel as, as Jesus is approaching the cross, which was so significant to his life. Not that he would only go about doing good, but that he, that he would also walk towards the cross in obedience to his Father. And he says in John chapter 12, verse 31, that now is the time. Now the world will be judged. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And the scripture says he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus goes to the cross. And this is the most masterful move. 
You know, when you play chess, and, and the most humiliating thing when you play chess, and I don't play it a lot because I'm not good at it, you have to think too hard in my mind. I want to relax my brain, not think hard when you play chess. But the most humiliating thing is when you make a move that checkmates yourself. I mean, that's just humiliating, but this is exactly what happened as Jesus goes to the cross. And Jesus allows the enemy to give him his best shot, death. And death can't hold him. And Jesus rises from the dead. But we read in Mark chapter 15, I want you to catch this, that Jesus was taken to a place called Golgotha. Do you know what Golgotha means? The place of the skull. It's at the cross that the crushing of the skull happens. That, that Satan is defeated once and for all. And so we read in, in Colossians chapter 2, we read that um, <clears throat> in the cross, Jesus has nailed to that cross all our trespasses and all those things that are against us. He's nailed them to this. He's by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. He set it aside. He nailed them to the cross. And in so doing, it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. Do you see what's happened at Christmas? It's the beginning of the crushing of the skull. It's the beginning of a life that will go about doing good and healing all that are oppressed of the devil. It's the beginning of a life that is destined to go to the cross and die on the cross so that he can disarm the rulers and the powers. And not only a victory on earth will be won, but a victory that is cosmic in its impact. When you read on in Revelations chapter 12, it talks about how there's a war in heaven and Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon and, and, and sometimes scholars debate whether this happened also with the incarnation or whether it's coming um, in a great tribulation at some point in the future. But what, what we do read is that this, this Satan, whom he's identified here, this serpent who is Satan, is cast down, he's cast down, he's cast down, he's cast down, he's cast down. And the scripture says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. We serve a risen Savior, the promised one, who came at Christmas and brought a great victory for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We need to know this. We need to be reminded of this as we live our lives in the day-to-day -day mixture of good and evil that we serve a God who has conquered is alive and victorious and rules at the right hand of the Father. In Revelation, the, the, the letter is written to those who are in their present day suffering persecution and may have wondered, is God in control? Like, what is going on? And, and I don't know what's going on in your life this morning, 
Uh, if, there, if it's all really good or if you're struggling, if there's difficulty, if there's loss, I, I don't know what's happening. But what I do know as we read this story and we see how God promises something and how he fulfills his promise and that we see that those that are against us and the forces of evil that would be against us have been overcome, past tense, through Jesus Christ, the one who came, who suffered and died and rose again that we can then live in the victory that he has already won for us. You see, you don't have to be fighting for a victory because the victory of his becomes yours when you put your faith and trust in him. So it says here in Revelations chapter 12 how they overcame. It says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. We conquer not by something we do, but by recognizing that the victory came through Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross, that it was there that he disarmed the rulers and the powers and the authorities. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They conquered, we conquer, by speaking God's truth, by speaking it to others, but by speaking it to ourselves, by reminding ourselves of the truth that our right standing with God is not on what we have done, but it's in the victory that Jesus Christ has accomplished when he came and through his life, death, and resurrection. And that's our testimony. And we testify to what God has been doing in our lives. And then lastly it says, and I think this is so important when you tie it to the creation story and the fall of man, it says they loved not their lives even unto death. You see, this is the exact opposite of Adam and Eve who are striving for something greater. But in light of of who God is and how he is worthy to be loved and worshipped, it's because of their faith that they're being persecuted. It says they love not their lives unto death. It's the complete opposite of Adam and Eve. It's when we surrender our hopes, when we surrender our dreams, when we surrender our whole being to the lordship of God, and we begin to hate things that, that we begin to hate those things that, that, that stir towards independence from God. We begin to hate those things, and instead we begin to love when it looks like to give our full allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we overcome. I was reminded of the words in James chapter 4. James is writing to a people who are struggling with their own selfish desires. And to them he says that they need to submit themselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from them. See, it's as we bring ourselves under submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ that we find our freedom. It's as we say to him, God, it's, it's you that I want you that I need, you that I must have, that we find the victory and the freedom that God has already brought for us because he came. Let me pray for us. God, this morning I thank you that your plan is so much bigger sometimes than um, than we think of it, Lord. That it's cosmic in scope. That what Jesus came and what he came to do, Lord, was was far more than just our own individual lives. As grateful as we are for that, Lord, I thank you that what Jesus has accomplished in coming and what he did, Lord, touches all of humanity and all of the heavenlies and all of our existence, both past, present, and future. Lord, we stand in awe this morning of your great plan.
and of your great person, of your great son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we reimagine what it's like to anticipate his arrival, Lord, how privileged and grateful we are to be able to look back and know that it has come and that it has accomplished a victory that touches our own lives for eternity. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.